everyone to um, a session of Denton's Time Out. We've previously covered um, podcasts for the National Cabinet Mandatory Code of Conduct for other states and territories in Australia. And now we're going to be talking about South Australia today. And I'd like to introduce you to uh, one of our partners in real estate in South Australia, Vince Mascolo, who's a specialist in leasing, who will tell us quite a bit about the uh, code and the legislation in South Australia. So hi, Vince. Hi, Sally. I suppose the first thing is the, um, the application of the National Cabinet Mandatory Code of Conduct for SMEs is different in each state and territory. So how does it particularly apply in South Australia? Uh, thanks, Ellie. Yep. So we were absolutely quite surprised when the our regulations came out actually applying the code. So our legislation that came out was the COVID Emergency Response Further Measures Amendment Act and the COVID Emergency Response Commercial Leases Number 2 regulations. Um, they came into force on the 15th of May 2020 and to an extent applied certain provisions of the mandatory code, but didn't apply it to the extent that probably we all expected. So the Act was assented to on the 15th of May as in the uh, South Australian Act and the sections dealing with commercial leases applied on and from the 30th of March, so it actually applied retrospectively and apply until the 30th of September, which coincide with the then understood period for the JobKeeper, although that may be extended given uh, recent news, and that is referred to in the Act and the regulations as the prescribed period. The um, provisions of the regulations which deal with commercial leases also apply for this prescribed period, other than for leases that were entered into after the 30th of March, uh, unless it was pursuant to an option to renew, obviously. Just like the code, our act applies to the concept of commercial leases. Our definition is incredibly broad, so it basically captures every single lease you can think of. We have also piggybacked the idea of financial hardship from the code as well. The idea is to provide some protections for the concept of affected lessees. An affected lessee is a lessee that's suffering financial hardship as a result of the pandemic and whose turnover is relevant. In a relevant year was less than 50 mils. So that's uh, basically taken directly from the code. In other Australian jurisdictions, to obtain the benefit of the code, tenants have to show they've qualified for JobKeeper. Is that the same in South Australia? To an extent, yes, but it's not limited to JobKeeper. So interestingly, the wording of our legislation refers to that a lessee will be taken to be an affected lessee and will be taken to be suffering financial hardship if the lessee is eligible for or receiving a JobKeeper payment in respect of the particular premises that they're claiming rent relief for. So it doesn't go as far as some of the other states. And what our legislation actually makes clear is that you don't as necessarily have to satisfy the JobKeeper requirements to be an affected lessee. So you can have less than a 30% reduction in turnover or just otherwise showing that you're suffering some form of financial hardship and still get the benefit of a number of the provisions of the Act. Yeah, that's interesting because I suppose it opens it up to more negotiations in, in South Australia and even more disputes as to whether, you know, a tenant is suffering from financial hardship. Yeah, yeah, that's right. One of the, the starting point of our regulations talks about with regards to rent relief that um, the parties just have to make a genuine attempt to negotiate in good faith 
what the rent will be payable during the prescribed period, which is the um, March to September period. But it doesn't go much further than that. So yeah, it, uh, it it leaves definitely open to some ambiguity and dispute, which um, is frustrating for us commercial lawyers and a sure delight to the ears of our litigation constituents. So what are the general sort of measures they've put in place? And, and in particular, actually, what are the obligations of the landlord to grant relief? Have they gone into specific detail about how the relief is to be granted, whether, you know, waivers or deferrals and things like that? Yeah, so our um, our legislation certainly doesn't go anywhere near as far as the code. Ours basically goes as far as referring to, like I just said, the uh, genuine attempt to negotiate rent relief in good faith. And then with regards to the code itself, it just says that you have to have regard to the code when negotiating. It also says that you have to have the economic impacts of COVID as well as the provisions of the Act and the regulations. But we definitely haven't gone as far as applying the code. We also definitely haven't gone as far as mandating that you have to give proportionate rent relief like the code does. We only just have that wording of having regard to, which again, as you know, Sally, is a, is a pretty ambiguous concept. So it could introduce uh, some, some disputes. The other measures that were introduced, some directly from the code, things like that the rent can't increase during the prescribed period for that concept of affected lessees, um, that reflects the code. There's also some restrictions on what actions a landlord can take. Again, somewhat reflecting what the code says. It uh, includes the concept of this idea of prescribed actions. And it says that the regs say that a landlord cannot take these prescribed actions against affected lessees during the prescribed period as a result of breaches of the lease, uh, mainly due to failure to pay rent, failure to pay outgoings or failing to open to trade, which is one of the things that a lot of tenants have had to do recently. And that concept of prescribed actions includes things like terminating the lease or the landlord terminating the lease as a result of the tenant being in breach, uh, the landlord seeking to re-enter. Some other measures that our regulations introduced was also like a quasi-moratorium period whereby any act by any lessee, not just an affected lessee, as a result of the laws of the state due to the pandemic, things like pubs and clubs and things like that not being able to open for trade, um, that would not amount to a breach. Then we get into the dispute resolution side of things. Our dispute resolution is centered on going to our small business commissioner in the first instance, and then there's a scope to be able to go to the magistrate's court in the event that the first mediation with the small business commissioner is unsuccessful. It covers disputes uh, such as whether or not a tenant is suffering for financial hardship, which I think will uh, result in some very interesting disputes and decisions disputes whether or not the rent relief granted is fair, and then basically anything else that's covered by the COVID legislation or leases in general. Applying to the court thereafter, you actually have to show that you failed, or the Small Business Commissioner actually has to issue a certificate to be specific, saying that you failed in your mediation with the commissioner. And the court has got much broader powers than the Small Business Commissioner does. The court can actually order things like rent relief and Interestingly, they've taken a provision specifically from the code, whereby in the event that the court does grant rent relief, they actually have to do the 50% in a form of a waiver, which is interesting that our approach seems to be, so landlord and tenant, yes, you don't necessarily have to do exactly what the code says, but if you don't, we, the court, may enforce it on you. 
So that seems to be the intention of our regulations, albeit not that many people in the industry seem to really follow that. Mm. That's interesting because we have a say where, I mean, landlords and tenants in New South Wales can freely, you know, negotiate something different. But failing that, most, the experience I've had is that people have basically followed the code, which is, you know, the, the waiver and the deferral. It's led to less disputes and they come to an agreement a lot quicker. But um, but interesting, Vince, because the, I've also heard comments from landlords and tenants generally in South Australia that the regulations in South Australia have a lot more grey areas, you know, than, than the other states. For example, you know, the information that a tenant needs to provide and both parties are quite unsure as to what their obligations are as to what information they have to give to each other. Is, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. You've basically covered off those two scenarios that have caused us the most grief over the last few months. I've gotten a number of queries from landlord and tenant clients alike, whereby they've asked me, well, I've got, let's say, acting for a landlord, tenants refusing to give me financial information, am I legally obliged to do so? And I know in New South Wales, they've actually mandated it, which makes a hell of a lot of sense. But in South Australia, our regulations don't make any mention of it whatsoever, other than that the court can actually request information from the tenant in justifying a tenant's request for a resolution of a dispute. But that's obviously a fair way down the track. When we have landlords asking, we say to them that, look, you have a pretty strong argument that in the event that a tenant refuses to give the information, you could really take the position and say, well, look, I'm not considering your rent relief because I don't consider that you're negotiating in good faith which is probably a pretty good argument because it's hard for a landlord to really properly consider a rent relief request without the financial information to back it up. Yeah, yeah. And the negotiating in good faith, as you just mentioned before, our regulations only go as far as saying that you have to negotiate in good faith, but it is a widely held belief amongst landlords, tenants and leasing agents that they just think that they're legally obliged to apply the code. I, you've suffered loss um, in turnover of 30%, 50%. You're entitled to a 30 50% reduction in rent. And our regulations just don't say that. It just says that you just have to negotiate in good faith. It may be, like I said before, the intention is that you've got the stick of the court in the background that if you don't, the court will make you. But everyone just seems to be applying it as if the code was mandatory anyway. Mm. Now, that's interesting. The one question we get asked a lot, and I was wondering what the situation is in South Australia, is can a landlord claim on a bank guarantee for a breach of the lease prior to your prescribed period? Yeah, so that's one of the ones that we thought would be a really easy answer when Mm. the code first came out, but it's really confusing. Um, We actually had a, a client that had this specific scenario. They had a tenant that had not been paying rent for the months actually leading up to COVID. Yeah. Um, so before COVID had broken out, specifically, I think, because they had tried to justify it on the basis that they were changing their business model and just closing their doors. And as you can appreciate, a landlord said, well, no, you're not spontaneously determining that you have a rent-free period. So we had to consider the question whether or not our regulations allowed the landlord to call on the bank guarantee. And the wording is just quite vague because it's not clear whether or not the legislators meant that the breach had to happen during the period in order for a tenant to be protected, i.e. that a landlord couldn't call on a bank guarantee, or did the legislators mean that it's intended to be a moratorium period Mm. in the sense that no matter what happens, no matter when the breach happened, you can't call on it. And in that particular case, our advice to our client had to be, look, it's just too risky. We just don't think it's a good idea. 
Yeah, okay. The other thing, Vince, I was going to ask you was to complicate all your all the COVID legislation that's come out lately in relation to leases. You've also got um, some new changes to your Retail Commercial Leases Act anyway, haven't you, that have come out recently? Yeah, that's right. So we had an amending act which came into effect on the 1st of July 2020, which, um, yeah, obviously didn't catch us by surprise. We knew it was going to happen at some point, but the timing basically couldn't have been worse. Um but look, it did clear up a lot of issues with our existing act. I'll um I'll briefly touch on a couple of them. It did specify that a lease can come in and out of the operation of the act, which was something that was really unclear beforehand. Mm-hmm. Most common ways of that is that we've got a rent threshold of four hundred thousand at the moment, and in the event that your rent goes over that amount, you no longer had the benefit of the act. So it did make clear that you could actually fall in and out. It also allowed for that rent threshold to be reviewed every two years, which was welcomed because since the 1995 um, introduction of the Act, I think it's only been reviewed once or twice, which is pretty crazy. It also cleared up a problem that I don't know how many states have this, but we have an implied minimum five-year term here with respect to retail leasing. And... We've also got this ambiguous provision which says that if you hold over for a period of six months, you won't have an implied five-year term. But if there is holding over beyond that, it didn't tell you what happened. So amongst the industry, everyone always thought, oh, wow, if a tenant ever holds over beyond six months, arguably a new five-year term starts, but no one had ever tested it. So we had always said to landlords, look, be careful with your tenants. Don't let them hold over for more than six months. And then lo and behold, we had a case in 2019, the Pastina case, as it's referred to, where we actually had the scenario where a landlord actually tried to enforce it against a tenant. Okay. So a tenant entered into a five-year lease. Four months in, they actually agreed to change the, well, actually increase the size of the premises, which was strange. That actually ended up being quite important in the decision. But then the um, tenant proceeded to hold over for another two years mm-hmm. after the expiry. And the landlord, quite strangely, then said to the tenant, no, 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 no. a new five-year term, term's been created as a result of the implied minimum five-year term. And it initially went to the magistrate's court who dismissed the claim. Then it got appealed to our Supreme Court and the Supreme Court actually overturned the magistrate's court and upheld the um, landlord's claim saying that, yes, this is an implied five-year term which certainly sent shockwaves in um, our industry because no one ever expected, A, that a landlord could claim it against a tenant. Yeah. Because... Well, it's usually for the benefit of the tenant, those kind of section, those kind of um, legislation, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. It was just to protect those small tenants who potentially could get turfed beforehand. But what our, the amending legislation did was make clear now that once you get beyond that six months there's no implied five-year term because that decision created a bit of a nonsense, really. Mm. Okay, no, that's interesting. Yeah, we got rid of that. We had that, a similar thing in New South Wales. We got rid of that about four years ago. So we've now come to the end of Dentist Time Out. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and we look forward to our next episode.